uh, feels like it's been an age since I've preached. It probably wasn't, but uh, it's been a while since I've been here. It is actually, it's about four weeks, I think, since I last preached here. I was up at Russell Kamer last week, had a great time up there. But I'm excited because today we're starting our series on Colossians. And you might have a really good memory and say, but Rob, we've preached through Colossians before, just last year. And um, you would be absolutely right. But we just did the first two chapters of Colossians. And um, now we're going to be taking on the second two chapters, chapters three and four of this uh, amazing book. And um, I'm going to just take you through today. Just uh, the, the title of my preach today is a fairy tale gospel, and it'll become um, it'll become clear to you why I've given that title, and hopefully it's uh, it's going to stir you and encourage you. The the the, the message that I I want to speak over you today, I believe, is something profoundly important. I'm saying this morning, it's a little bit like if you've got something in your house that has been that sits in a particular place that you think is amazing, but it sits in the same place, and you always see it from one angle. Eventually, over time, you become a little bit familiar with that thing that's in your house. And then maybe your wife, who likes to move the house around a little bit from time to time, which is the want of women in our homes, as, as men find out, uh, the one day she actually moves it around and you come home and you see it from a completely different angle and you, it's, you have a, a fresh perspective on this object that's in your home. And I think the gospel can sometimes be like that. I think God has given us something so extraordinarily beautiful and we can become familiar through our exposure to it. But from time to time, God wants to shift it around so we can see some other aspect of it and allow that to stir us up. Does that sound good? And uh, it's okay, I just want to say, if you need a shout out while I'm preaching, okay? If, if suddenly, while I'm preaching, you're just so overcome by the truth and you're so stirred up and excited and you just want to shout out, Jesus, that's amazing, or something like that, then go for it, okay? You won't put me off. Matt's desperately keen to shout out while I'm preaching. Somebody will. I can see that. Probably John, I've got to say. But uh, somebody's going to shout out while I'm preaching. Um, but so we're going to dive into that second part of Colossians. We did chapters 1 and 2. And uh, this is a, like an overview of how the book naturally splits up into those two parts. The first part of Colossians has to do with the do doctrine, actually, about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The second part that flows out of it is what is our spiritual duty? The, the spirituality of us as the saints. One is our beliefs which flow into our behaviors. And I love this one. The first part being Christ's provision for believers. And the second part being Christ's work through the believers. And this is, Paul often does this in his book. Because you go read through the epistles, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, um, whatever, Colossians and so on, if you read through those epistles, you'll see that they often end up with the first part being Paul talking about the gospel, talking about who we are because of the gospel, and then the second part of it has to do with how do you live. And that's what the Colossians follows the same sort of thing. In the, in the very first chapter in verse 10, Paul sets out what I believe his objective is in this book. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can kind of flick onto them in your app or whatever it is and it's a great excuse if you need to check your Facebook. You can get out your pens. You're looking at your Bible. Jackie, are you on your Bible or on Facebook? Jackie. Yes, that is a guilty face if I've ever seen one. Holy moly. Caught. Forgive her, please, Lord. She knows not what she does. <laughs> okay, she's on her Bible. She flicks across quickly. So um, so in, in, in verse 10, Paul sets out having spoken about the fact that he wants us to grow in our knowledge of the will of God, he 
sets out, he says, so that we can live a life, a worthy life, fully pleasing to the Lord. And I, I believe that's part of what God wants for us, is that we live lives that are worthy of this incredible King that we serve. I, we, um, Wayne read out from Colossians, first chapter of Colossians there, about who Jesus is. And from verse 15 through to verse 23, Paul, um, probably using a hymn, explains to us the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of who Jesus is. He's not like the, the best hero you could ever have. He's not like the, the, the greatest, I don't know, leader or sportsman or, or most courageous soldier. He is something completely and utterly above all that. And uh, God in His grace sent His Son to die for us. This gospel of, uh, of Christ is so extraordinary. And sometimes we become so familiar with it that we begin to live ordinary, mundane lives that are not worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul's exhortation is live worthy of the King that has called you and live worthy of the call that is upon your life uh, in a way that is pleasing to God. So he lays out who Christ is in verse um, 24 through chapter 2, verse 3. Paul goes back again to his objective and he says, I'm I'm wanting, my work, my struggle in this ministry is to present you perfect before God. And he's speaking about this journey that we go on, having come to Christ and being born again. There's a journey in which we are becoming who we are. Day by day, week by week, month by month, we are becoming more like Jesus. Exactly. Uh, we, don't, we don't become more like our pastor. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We don't become more like our parents or more like this. The, the call of the Christian is every day to become more like Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he, as he um, exhorts them about this journey that they're on, comes to them and, and in chapter 2 and verse 3 onwards, warns them about a dangerous tripwire. You all know what a tripwire is. Now imagine you, you're in the Vietnam War. If there's anyone from Vietnam here, I don't know whose side I was on in that at all. I'm just saying it's a mazenous scenario. And you walk into the forest and you, you're looking around to see if there's any, any enemies around. And this tripwire is laid low down to the ground. And if you step over it, it triggers a grenade or arrows or something shoot out from the bushes and take you out. And, and Paul's warning that in your journey, watch out, watch out, he says. There's a tripwire here. And in the book, Paul talks about the, the um, plausible arguments. And he says, do not be deluded by plausible arguments. The thing about plausible arguments is that they're plausible. They, you know, they, they, they can be believed. They, they, like if you, somebody comes and presents them to you today, you'd be going, well, well, that makes sense, I suppose. You know, Maybe really if I am a true Christian, I should be celebrating that holy day and I, I should be not wearing those kind of clothes and I should be doing this and I should be doing all those sorts of things. I, I, there's certain religious activities that I, I have to be carrying out in order to be a Christian. It makes sense, I suppose. I'll, I'll live a holier life that way, maybe. And Paul's saying there's, there's a danger in that. Because Paul is so concerned whenever we try and follow Christ by external um, impetus or motivation rather than by what God does from the inside out in us that brings change that is lasting and change that is real in our lives. And so for the rest of that chapter, Paul goes through and he begins to unpack or present rather the gospel argument in verse 6 of chapter 2 he speaks about sorry i'm just catching my cheek here in verse 6 he speaks about the fact that we to live from our roots i was uh, telling the guys this morning that i had some i did some transplanting in our garden i 
terms of space, I've been at a space since I've been here, and I, just, I, I quite like the idea that I'm, I can get to do this gardening work. So I went out, there were two um, trees that I'd bought and planted before, and I wanted to move them to the back of the house, and so I dug them up, but I was a little bit lazy, and so I dug small little holes around them and cut off the hollowed roots around them. I thought it's easier to carry if they've got less roots, and I planted them, and said, yeah, I know, Francis is shaking his head. So what a rookie, what a rookie, he says. And he's right, I planted them in the back garden, and after a day, the leaves were starting to look a bit saggy. After a few days, the leaves went brown, and after not too long, the leaves all fell off the tree, and I'm slowly caressing it back to life again as the roots are somehow trying to get out there. And uh, having learned the lesson, I had to move another four and, uh, into the front of our garden. So this time, I dug a massive area around them because the roots are so important, I found out. And so I dug this massive hole, and then I went and moved them to the other part. Uh, the, the ground in our desert is harder than you realize. I mean, I kind of thought I'd just get my spade and flip this thing out. I actually had to go to my garage and get a big chisel and a hammer, and that's how I dug the holes in the ground. Linda comes out. I'm hammering this chisel into the ground and then doing this and then hammering it like this. I carved out these holes that I put these plants in with their full roots, and they have grown beautifully. You can come to my house, and you can come see my transplanted plants that are growing beautifully. The point of this, of that story, is that roots are so important. And Paul's saying, we, we, sometimes we want a different fruit. We're hoping our leaves are going to be all perky and good, and we, we're not paying attention to the roots. And Paul's saying, if you're a believer, if you're born again by the Spirit of God, your roots have changed. Your roots speak about what's happened in your past. We have been born again. And in the, in the, in the verse that go on, Paul speaks about the fact that we've died with Christ. And we've been raised with Christ. And so we are completely different. Our roots have changed. And because of that, our fruits change. And Paul's saying, live from your roots. It's sort of the, the, the massive part out of the first part of this. And um, our past determines our future. Not in the sense of our past sins, but the past decision we made to trust in Jesus Christ when we were born again. And it's so important for Paul because... The principalities and the powers, Paul says, have, have weaponized our failure to keep the law. See, all of us, the Bible says, have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to keep the law perfectly. And because of that, the enemy has a hold over us. And Colossians 2, and I think it's verse 13, Paul says of Jesus that he disarmed the principalities and the powers at the cross. And so this is like, the, it's like somebody trying to hold me up with a water pistol. You know, imagine... We have things called hijackings every now and again. In South Africa, somebody will come knock on the window with a gun and say, I want your car. It's unfortunate, I've got to say. But, but imagine trying to do that with a water pistol. You'd be like, hey, buddy, give me your best. You know, just spraying at your window like this. And he's saying that's what's happened to the devil. He doesn't have a gun anymore. He doesn't have a Magnum 45. He's got a water pistol. He has been disarmed because our failure to keep the law has been washed away. Christ has kept it perfectly, and that perfect keeping of the law has been imputed or given to us so that we are righteous, and his weapons and his power, his weapons have been taken away, and his power has been removed. And in verse, verses 16 and 18, Paul's got this wonderful play. Throughout this book, there's these, these sets that happen. And in verse 16, he says, let no one. In verse 18, he says, let no one. Let no one, blah, 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 let no one. Let no one pass judgment. Let no one disqualify you. And he says this. He says, because you don't have the shadow. See, all the rules of men, all the regulations that people can put in place, all the expectations are just 
simple thing. Don't let anybody judge you because you're not dressed in the way. I, somebody came to um, Will of Life, came to one of our looking at lunches and said, the reason why they, I'm sure maybe you're here tonight. I just love this, I love this um, thing that they shared. They said, the reason they came to Will of Life was because their friend was coming. I think they're from Nigeria. And the friend said to them, I'm going to church. And uh, this person looked them up and down and said, you can't go to church dressed like that because apparently in Nigeria, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you go to church, man, you dress up. You know what I mean? It's like, am I right, eh? Come on, see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get the, the waistcoat on. I've got a friend of mine who, who's in Nigeria, leaves the church. Man, this guy has got he's everything. The waistcoat, the tie, the little tissue thing in, the jacket pocket, the whole works. Uh, and she couldn't believe a friend was saying, like, you, you're going to go to church dressed like that? And she said, she said, she said yeah, I'm going. I'm sure I didn't say, yeah, because she's from Nigeria. She probably said, yes. I'm going to church like this. She said, well, can I come and see? And she loved the fact that she could just come to church. She didn't have to go home and get dressed and get all made up and come to church. Let no one disqualify you or pass judgment upon you because you don't have the shadows, the things that don't count, where you have the thing that counts, which is Jesus. That's what we have. We have the gospel of Christ. We've been born again. We have the substance. In verse 20, another one of those pairs, Paul says, if you have died with Christ. Um, if with Christ you died, the elemental spirits of the world, the law and the flesh, stop trying to fulfill its regulations. And uh, again, he makes the point that all of those things, wearing the right clothes, saying the right things, whatever the rules are in your mind that make you a worker, none of those things are effective in helping us to live a life worthy of God. None, none of those things are effective in, in making us live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And then he pairs that, verse 20 of chapter 2, if, and then what I'm going to read to you tonight from chapter 3, verse 1, if, as well. But before we get to that, just hold on as we get into that. I'm going to start with a quote from a, a Methodist um, minister by the name of Edward Rogers. And uh, he asked a question, he says, as we come towards Easter time, for him it was uh, the kind of Lent time that starts, and the, the days that are leading up to Easter, he says, what... What are your eyes drawn to? What are the things that you focus on? What above all else do we see? And he, he goes on to say this. Is it the darkness that covered the earth at noon, swirling around the pain and the anguish of the cross? Or is it the dazzling, mysterious early morning brightness that shone from the empty tomb? The truth which is obscured only at grave spiritual peril is that the crucifixion cannot be interpreted or understood save in the light of the resurrection. Through his death, Jesus freed men and women from their bondage to slavery and death. But through his resurrection, he gives them a life which is as glorious and indestructible as his own. Through this triumphant resurrection, we have faith and hope in God. And that's essentially how Paul starts the second part of Colossians as he talks finishes talking about identification in the death of Christ, and he starts chapter 3, although he didn't call it chapter 3, he just writes one letter, he starts what we call chapter 3 with this, reminding us of our identification in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the implications of that, and that's what I want you to take away this evening as I go through, what does it mean for me that Christ is resurrected, that I am resurrected with him, and so let's read Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses. If then 
you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's a, another wonderful pattern in this text of this double pairing that Paul does. And it's kind of like a sandwich. So imagine going home after the meeting tonight and taking a, a, a slice of, of really fresh, beautiful bread and putting some butter on it and then putting some ham and pickles and cheese and mustard and, and putting another piece of bread on top of that. So you've got the layers of your sandwich. You can follow me in the slide. And uh, that's what's happened in this passage here. You've got the two A's, which are the slices of bread, and you've got the meat that's in the middle of it. And, the, and then the, the last part there, which um, I'll explain to you in a moment what it is, is like a glass of that, whatever that you want to drink with that sandwich. Maybe it's a glass of ice-cold milk or a Coke with ice or... Um, if you do um, indulge in a beer, maybe it's a nice craft beer on the side of your sandwich or something like that. And the first, the, the two, the A part there are the slices of the bread, and that speaks of our spiritual position or our, follow me, bro, or our, our status in, uh, supposed to flow just so naturally, I'm going to get myself a clicker. Um, that speaks of our spiritual position, our status. Raised with Christ, died with Christ, that's what's happened to us, it's done, it's are. We are who we were has died, and now we are raised with Christ. The middle part, the meat of the sandwich, speaks of our response or our responsibility. And I use the word responsibility because, friends, if we are born again, if this that we've spoken about has taken place, then surely we have a responsibility to then live in accordance with what God has done in us. And lastly, that last part, the, the cool things on the side, is our true but hidden identity. And uh, I hope to reveal to you tonight that the person that you're sitting next to is not who you think they are. So let's start with our spiritual position or our status. And let's deal, first of all, with the if. In Colossians, uh, verse one, Colossians 3, verse 1, as I read, it starts, if you were raised with Christ. And it, it's, some people might wonder, does that mean that maybe we aren't raised with Christ? Is this Paul's writing to him saying, look, may or may not be raised with Christ. I'm not entirely sure. I, I know you've given your life to Jesus, but, you know, maybe this has happened. Um, he's not saying that at all. What, what Paul is using is he's using a, a grammatical tool to express a certainty. And he, he uses the same thing elsewhere in the Scriptures. He speaks um, in, in Romans chapter 5. Um, you can stay on the previous slide, please. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, he says, um, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now um, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His blood. In Romans 5, verse 15, it says, If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace. Oh, whatever. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. If Paul's not saying these things may have happened. He's saying they have happened. He's using that grammatical technique. And so he says, if you've been raised with Christ, another way it would be said is since you've been raised with Christ. And so West translates it, this is his version of verse 1. He says, in view of the fact, therefore, that you were raised with Christ. In view of the fact, therefore. Friends, every one of us, like those believers in Colossae, 
that the, the saints that have put their trust in Christ, every single one of us, have been raised with Christ. And that means that we have entered into eternal life already. Some people come to Jesus and they think, you know what, I can't wait until I enter into eternal life. When I die and I leave this life, then I'll enter into eternal life. But the Bible says you have already been raised from the dead. That eternal life that will be ours for all eternity is already in us. That glorious spark of eternity has already been lit into a flame inside of us and, and burns within us. I was uh, picked this book up while I was um, over the summer and started reading it. It's a book by Francis Schaeffer called True Spirituality. Um, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff before, watched any of his videos. He, uh, I think he, he did a series called How Now Shall We Live or How Then Shall We Live. It was kind of a um, critique of, of modern culture. He looked at some of the artists like, like Jason Pollock, for example, and talks about how the randomness of his paintings actually reflects uh, an understanding of our existence that is so completely random. We've, we've, we, 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 we're the result of random forces at work, our lives, human life is meaningless and so with Jason Pollock it is him eh, that sticks the hole in the paint and then sprays it Jackson Pollock it's Jason Pollock because he's Nightmare on Elm Street three of us and, uh, Jackson Pollock as he sprays it around on that, on that canvas like this and it's completely random and, and stupid I suppose in many ways I'm, I don't, I'm not an art critic so I'm just giving you my humble opinion what he's trying to show or what he's showing and displaying is that the world is completely random anyway that's completely aside. So I was reading through this book on true spirituality, and there are a few parts of it that really struck me. Because I think what Francis Schaeffer is calling us to is not to live a kind of um, dumbed down form of Christianity, a kind of, I'm a member of the church, a little bit like the adverts for the, the youth event next Friday night. Did anybody get any tickets for me this morning, Morgan? One. One. Sure. Anyway, next Friday night, there's an opportunity. I know you're going to be missing here, but I don't think it's a bad thing for the young people to get together and meet uh, many of the young adults from some of the other churches as well. But it's a bit like that, not just a Friday night. How do we live a life that actually that the, the, for the fullness of the gospel is, um, is experienced by us and, and seen through us? And he goes in this book and he says that um, in order for us to live a truly spiritual life, we have to have this foundational understanding that we've died with Christ, which I think we understand. I'm, I'm no longer, the old man has died that we see in baptism. I've gone under the ground and I've died. But he says, in order for us to truly live that life, we have to move on to the second truth, which is that we've also been raised with Christ. And I suppose one day we could do a baptism where we only do half the baptism, which is we hold the person under the water and we just stay there like that until eventually they're kicking and throwing. We, we eventually, we always bring them out. And, uh, and we can't die without being raised up. What kind of a gospel would that be? We've died. The old man has died. The price has been paid, as it were, by Christ. And if we identify with him on the cross, then we are raised with him as well. And he goes on to say that the true Christian life has to live, is, is living out our life in the light of Christ's resurrection. And maybe even more so in the light of our own future resurrection. And um, Schaefer is not calling for us to have this kind of weird, super spiritual um, way of looking at life, like we walk around and our voice shakes, oh, hallelujah, Jesus, ah, and you go, how are you doing? You're, oh, my mind's in heaven right now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus came 
to the earth. He was, he was, a, he was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. And Francis Kaper talks about the fact that Jesus um, lived in our time and space reality. He, he, he lived in a place that if we lived 2,000 years ago, we could have gone to Galilee and visited. In fact, we still go there now. You can go to some of the places where Jesus most definitely would, would have walked by or, or the temple sites where he would have um, chased the people out of the, out of the temple and things like that. And Francis Schaeffer is calling us to live a, a Christian life that is as real on this earth as any life a person could live, but is rooted in what's being done in eternity. And he says this about um, the work, about, about the reality of the life we live. He says, first, Christ dies in heaven. Second, Christ rose in heaven. Third, we died with Christ physically when we accepted him as our Savior. Fourth, we will be raised in history when he comes again. There's a time coming when it happens in our life and we see Christ will return. It may happen after we've already gone to be with him. When Jesus Christ will return, it'll be, it'll, it's, everyone will see it. It's not like some idea of something. It, it represents something else. Jesus will literally return. He says, fifth, we are to live by faith now as though we were dead, already have died. And sixth, we are to live now by faith as though we had already been raised from the dead. And the thing that struck me as I continue to read this book, it's like, a, like somebody has taken a bat and hit me on the head with it. Don't do that in case you're wondering. But it, I mean, I was, it was like it struck me. Because Francis Kaper said that we've got to live now in thought and in action as if we have literally died, been raised from the dead, gone to heaven, and then been sent back again. Not just the case, and this is—I mean—I read this over and over again, and I, I meditated on it. It's not just a case that that I, like I've been—I died and I've been raised, like a like a car that's broken down and somebody fixed it and got it working again, and now I'm—I was—I was broken and Jesus came in and fixed me. We have in South Africa we call them a skidong, that kind of a car, and in Zimbabwe they call them a skora skora, which is just that kind of car that doesn't really work and and they uh, they don't have much there, and so they fix the cars. I'm stunned, actually, some of the ways that a car, they hit a pothole, the whole chassis of the car bends like this, it's like twisted, and I'm thinking, oh, that's the end of that car, but they'll fix that thing, they'll get it working, and some people think that, think that they're those kind of Christians, my chassis is completely bent like this, and God came in and took the hammer, and he kind of whacked the chassis into place, and so, so we, we live our Christian life like we kind of wobble along like those cars, if you drive in Zimbabwe, sometimes you see buses coming straight for you, because they're so twisted, they're facing you, but they're driving like this. The wheels are pointing this way and the body's pointing this way. And some people live their Christian life like that, like they're just a reconditioned sinner, like God's come with a hammer and kind of whacked us. It's not the case at all. We have died. We have gone to heaven and God has sent us back again. And as, as this, this week I've been trying to, and the weeks that have, since I've been reading this, I've been trying to live with, the, with what, is the, what does this mean to me to live no longer as somebody who is just earthly, but somebody who's actually heavenly, and I'm living out my, my walk now as, as almost like an alien in this place here. And uh, Paul's, Paul's message to the believers in Corinth is that we're to, we're to live with that realization in our lives. There is a, and that leads us to the second part, which is our response or our responsibility to this. Lightfoot, in his translation of that first verse, says this. If this be so, if you were raised with Christ, if you were translated into heaven, what follows? 
And every good preacher, every time he writes, there's, there's one thing that he should do when he gets to the end of his preach. Once he kind of puts his pen down, he goes, okay, I'm done. He should take the pen up again and write at the bottom of the preach two big words with a question mark, so what? Because every preach should lead us to some response. And Paul's, the way that it's translated here, he's asking, so what? If you've been raised from the dead with Christ, does it mean anything? Should, does it impact upon your everyday life? Does it change the way that you live your life? And uh, Paul responds with an emphatic yes. And as we sit here tonight, we should be shouting out, as I ask it, does it make a difference? You should be shouting out, yes, 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 it makes a difference. But it doesn't just make a difference from the fact that we're raised and now I've got to suddenly behave in certain ways. I'm going to put certain rules in place because that's the very thing that Paul's trying to get us to avoid here. Paul doesn't go to a list of behaviors that we should be putting in place. Paul goes inward. He goes into the heart. Because he knows that unless the change takes place here, it's not going to be lasting. Have you ever been someone that's had New Year's resolutions? How many of those have you kept? I know Matt tried to stop smoking last year. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> I'm getting Matt back. There's a book that I'm going to quote from just now. And I, I went out to the morning congregation because I knew I'd lent it to somebody. I said, if you, if you have borrowed my book and you've not given it back to me, I beg you, I won't judge you quietly put it on my, on my chair and return it to me, and Matt sheepishly admitted it. He has my book. But if you've ever tried to keep a New Year's resolution, one of the things that you find is things that you try and do in your own strength, unless it's been a revel revelation, it's not something that you can actually keep going with, but that requires such grind. And so Paul goes and he says, he says, given that this is, given the fact that you've been raised from the dead with Christ, he goes on and says, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. The, the seeking speaks of what our desire is. What, what, what is it that we long for? I had a, um, a friend of mine that fortunately was in a bad accident many years ago. But um, he was just, um, we were both, we studied together, we went to, to work together. He was a year ahead of me. And um, I, this guy was super ambitious. I mean, he would have left me behind. And he was going places. In, um, in work, and uh, he used to get up each morning, he went to go see a life coach or something, and a guy told him to do this thing, he used to get up each morning, and he used to look in the mirror, I think John probably does this as well, and he used to, say, not anymore, <laughs> and he used, to, he used to look at the guy in the mirror, and he used to go, and he used to go, you're amazing, obviously, because Paul says I think about himself, but then he, the thing that he wanted, the thing that was his driving thing was he wanted a Ferrari, and he had a, he had a little, what do you call them, dinky toys, what it was, like a little model model of a Ferrari that he could keep above his mirror. He used to look at his Ferrari and he used to visualize the fact that one day he's going to drive a Ferrari like that. Friends, that, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He says, don't seek the things of the earth. Seek the things that are above. Don't set your thoughts on the things of the earth. Set them on the things that are above. Look at what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verse 15 and 17. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him everything in the world, and he defines what he means by this, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Luke 12, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And Paul's saying, given that you've been raised with Christ, that actually you've come from heaven to earth, it says, Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except the one that has come from heaven. 
friends, our identification with Christ is so um, complete that we too now, because of our death and our resurrection, have come from heaven back to earth again, and we're living this life right now. And so we know we're not to be caught up in the things of the earth, and I know it's not easy. I mean, you only have to turn on the TV or open a magazine, and, and, there's, and there's invitations all the time to, to have more of this and to, you know, to, to use that deodorant so you can have that many girlfriends or whatever it is as the, as the ages go on. But the, 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 the call upon us is, is you're born again. Your, your, your origins are no longer of this earth. Sandeep, you're from heaven. You, you, you're called, amen, brother. You are called to seek the things that are above. You're called to set your mind on the things that are above. And Paul's exhortation is, don't worry about the behavior up front. Worry about what, you, what you're hungering after. Because you can be lusting after a Ferrari as much as anybody else, but walk into church as pious as the next person. The change needs to take place from the inside out. And the change doesn't take place because we we cajole to do it. The change takes place because we are different people. Give up on the Ferrari, John. Sow it to your friend. <laughs> and the call that's in place here is that we do, we to live like our father Abraham. The thing about Abraham was, and this was a this was a, a guy that lived his life to the full. He was a hundred years old and still had an active sex life. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And uh, his 99-year-old wife, or whatever age she was, was having babies and things like that. He, but, yeah, amen. Not too late, Wayne. But both Abraham and those that were part of that um, Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith, um, all lived for what was still to come. Listen to what it says in verse 13. These all died in faith of those heroes, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and they having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Paul's, his, what he's calling us to is to live like resident aliens. One of the, the gifts that we get by living in Dubai, because I'm never going to get an Emirati passport. Maybe you know some secret things, I don't know, but it doesn't matter how long I, I live here, and I know some people that have been born here, lived here their whole lives, Guess what they don't have? An Emirati passport. Because unless you're Emirati, we are resident aliens here. We, every couple of years, we go and get another one of those orange stickers that take up a whole page in our poor passports. And it says, you can stay here as a resident for another two years, but you don't belong here. This place belongs to someone else. We belong somewhere else. And uh, I've got a green passport, which is the best passport in the world. It tells me that I belong in South Africa. If you don't have one, unlucky for you, but I've got one of those things. And um, But actually, what Paul is telling us and what we learn in this place is actually there's nowhere on earth that we belong because we're not of this earth anymore. Our citizenship is somewhere else. Uh, so it, it would be useless for me to build a whole life here in a way as if I'm going to be here forever when actually I'm going to end up having to go live somewhere else. And Paul says the same thing careful where you're storing up and what you're going after because you're living somewhere else. You have been raised with Christ. And Paul goes on in, in the verses that follow to speak about putting to death that which is earthly in you and, and putting off those, those parts of our, of our humanity that, that break up relationship with each other and, and separate us from God and, and putting on heaven and all those sorts of things. And, and he speaks about that, but, um, but it starts with this place. It starts with recognizing who we are, and from, from changing our focus from the things that we thought 
we're part of who we are, fixing our attention on the things that are really who we are. Someone once said that something of the quality of heaven ought to cling to us even as we live out our lives in this earthly world. See, the world needs heavenly people. The world needs people not, not in that weird spiritual way I said that they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, but I mean in that real, that gutsy, I want to say earthly, but I mean the opposite way of it, but the spiritual way. I was speaking to the leaders Wednesday, talking about that um, only the, the uh, I can't remember exactly how, um, I think it was, it was Oswald uh, Charles said it, but whoever it was, he said it's, it takes spiritual men and women to bring about spiritual change. And we want to change from just being, well, I'm a Christian, I've got my Christian badge, I attend church on a Friday. Oh no, great, it's more than that. Every single one of us is more than that. We've got we've got to start to accept the responsibility we have to live as the sons and daughters of God. Which leads me to my last point, and I'm going to land with this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, the, the last part of verse 3, and verse 4 says this, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Your life, that's you, is hidden in Christ. And when Christ appears, then he will, you will appear with Him in glory. And uh, our, my heading on this section is our, our real life, our hidden but true identity. This book that Matt has uh, stolen from me and not returned to me. Um, you know the thing that, that, that burns the most about this book is, is that I lent it to him and he hasn't read it yet. Took it on holiday and instead of reading this unbelievable book, I would lend it to you, but now I'm too scared to lend it to anybody. I was turning my house upside down, house shouting to my children. I was sure one of them had taken and read it. There was, I, I was throwing stuff off shelves. No, I'm joking. I wasn't, but I was looking at moving this book. But this book is um, by Frederick Buechmann. It's called this, Telling the Truth. The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. With a title like that, you want to read that book, hey? And, um, and he's an he's a unbelievable writer, Frederick Buechmann. And he talks about the fact that the gospel is tragedy. Like the, like the best tragedies that you, Shakespearean tragedy or movie that's a tragedy. Have you ever sat down with your wife and watched one of those tragic movies where you know, just from the beginning, you realize, oh, this is going to end badly. Everyone's going to die or... You know, what's going to happen like this? And your wife says to me, well, I'm not watching this. Everyone's going to die. And you're like, because I started this thing. I'm not stopping it now. We're watching this thing. Woman, sit down. We're watching this movie now. It doesn't matter if everybody dies. But that's what happens to tragedies. It's just like, like you can just see the thread going through. It's, it's, gonna, it's just going down. It's getting more complicated and worse and worse and worse. And it just ends so badly. And that's us. That's our world. We, we've fallen. We've broken. We cannot save ourselves. And he says the gospel comes to a people that are in tragedy. We just, no matter how many advances we make, we revert back into the worst of humanity. No matter how great a job we do in, uh, in raising a generation, some of them end up going into the worst possible ways. How can human trafficking be at the highest level in the world than it's ever been? How come in our, the, the civilized countries, uh, men are going in droves to have sex with children in other nations? What? But what is what? It's tragedy. We're broken. We're lost. We're blind. But he says the gospel is comedy. And, and he uses a picture of, of Sarah or Sarai, as she was at the time, when God comes to Abraham and says to him, you're going to have, by this time next year, your wife will be pregnant. And Sarah knows. But God looks down at her withered womb. I know she can't see it directly, but she, 
you look down to where it would be, and she's thinking it's a prune. That's the best I'm hoping for at the moment. And uh, she's 90. What is it? Is she 98 or something like that? And uh, she laughs out loud. She laughs and pretends like, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, I mean, God says to Abraham, why is your wife laughing? And Elijah's like, no, she didn't laugh. Someone else, saw a rat or something like this. I don't know what, how he explained it away. But it is laughable. How can, how can this man at the age he is, this woman at the age he is, have a baby, he says. It's a, it's a, how can we so broken, so undeserving, the enemies of God, be the recipients of grace so amazing that God would send his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. And more than that, friends, that we should be adopted into the family of God. And then the last part is she goes on and she speaks about the gospel of fairy tales. And I, um, I, I mean, I really do enjoy fairy tales. I'm not much into Cinderella these days. It's sleeping beauty or any of those. I, I probably did as a kid. I can't really remember. And, um, and also my kids have grown up a bit now, so I don't even get to read those to them anymore. But what about the fairy tales like Narnia or Lord of the Rings or, or whatever other modern versions of? And the idea of the, of the, of the fairy tale um, really grew up and it picked up on this thing. And I love it because I love our imagination. I believe our imagination is one of the gifts God has given us. I, I love that we, we kind of get to explore. I went and saw that film, which is quite paganistic, um, Avatar. Remember that one? With the, and um, I was watching it, I think with Maxie, we were watching it 3D, and they were going through, remember those, where those worlds were hanging in the sky and things like that, like just hanging there like this. And I thought, if somebody built this up, somewhere in God's creation that exists, I can't wait to go see this. I'm not, if my imagination can see it, God's imagination has already created. I'll get to, I'll get to go and explore that one day. And uh, I'm going to read you two paragraphs from this book. I'm going to say one thing and read you the last two paragraphs. He says, yeah, we weren't born yesterday. We are from Missouri. I know you literally aren't. We are also from somewhere else. We are from Oz, from Looking Glass Land, from Narnia, and from Middle Earth. If with part of ourselves we are men and women of the world and share the sad unbelief of the world, with a deeper part, still the part where our best dreams come from, it is as if we were indeed born yesterday or almost yesterday. Because we are also, all of us, children. No matter how forgotten or neglected, there is a child in all of us who is not willing to believe in the possibility that maybe fairy tales are true after all, but who is to some degree in touch with that truth. The child in us lives in a world where nothing is too unfamiliar, oh sorry, too familiar or unpromising. We open into the world where paths unwind before our feet in a deep wood. And when that happens, neither the world we live in nor the world that lives in us can ever entirely be home again, any more than it was home for Dorothy in the end. Um, even because in the Oz books that follow the wizard, she keeps coming back again and again to Oz because Oz, not Kansas, is where the heart is. And the wizard turns out not to, to be not a humbug, but the greatest wizard of all. And you see what Freddie Buechner is saying to us is that actually we've gone to him. We've gone to this other world. We've tasted like, like, um, like the children in Narnia when they went to the wardrobe. They tasted the other world and they came back again. And they, there was ever a longing for the place where they had been. And Al, uh, not Alice, uh, Dorothy had gone into Oz, and even though she now was back in Kansas again, there was ever a longing for where they had come from. And friends, we, 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 God wants to stir up within us this longing for where we are. 
The other thing about fairy tales is that it's only in the end that we really get to know who the person truly is. Cinderella looks like a maid dressed in rags and she's cleaning the houses for her for the rooms of her ugly sisters. And uh, but it turns out that her inner beauty is actually who she really is. She is this princess that is worthy of love and worthy to be um, be dressed beautifully and worthy to be cared for. And the the beast and the beauty and the beast is not just an animal as he appears on the outside. He's crude and he's, he's actually a prince and he's a man with gentleness and a man that can love and be loved as well. And Peter and Elizabeth and Lucy and Edmund are not just children. It turns out that they are the kings and the queens of Narnia. And so Paul writes and he says, your life, friend, you, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear him in glory. And Paul is trying to tell you, and this is, this is not motivational speaking, that you are a prince and a princess. You are a son and a daughter of God. That's what the gospel tells us. That's why fairy tales, I believe God has um, put them into our, the, the heads of our poets and they get written because it is, it's reminding us of a world that echoes in the background that we know actually is our home. And Buechner goes on to say this, the world of the gospel, as with the world of the fairy tale, is a world of magic and mystery, of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It is a world where terrible things happen, terrible things happen, and wonderful things too. It is a world where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos. In a great struggle where often it is hard to be sure who belongs to which side, whose appearances are endlessly deceptive. Yet for all its confusion, the wildness, it is a world where the battle goes ultimately to the good, who live happily ever after. And where in the long run, I love this point, everybody, good and evil alike, becomes known by his true name. That is the fairy tale of the gospel, with of course one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true. That it not only happened once upon a time, but it's kept on happening ever since, and it's happening Sonny, won't you come up and friend, won't you stand with me? I I hope and not in the sense that I I want a, a pat on the back. I really do hope that I've done some justice to those incredible four verses. And that what what Paul writes is isn't it amazing that Paul can write just lines like that with so much wonder and truth at the same time. And I hope that in some ways that you see the people around you differently. That if you're married, you recognize that your wife is not just Linda from Durban in South Africa. She's the daughter of the Most High God. She is, she is a princess in the land of, of Narnia and the land of her people. She, is, she literally is that. Not figuratively, is literally that. And you in turn as husband are literally a prince. And, and Paul says, he says, I want you to know God and I want you to know his will that you can live a worthy life. Kind of like he wants to come and we, we like that broken, we think we're that broken car that's been kind of bent back into shape and we're trying to live our Christian life without crashing and we kind of splutter along. He says, that's not Changed. You've died with Christ, haven't you? You've been raised with Christ.
set your mind on the things that are above. Realize who you are. Live out who you are in this life. I'm, I'm utterly persuaded, friends, that this is not as easy as it sounds because we get so many other messages and so many distractions and detours along the way. But I believe it is a profound, profoundly necessary truth for us to allow the Spirit of God to turn into revelation in our hearts that we are going to live out this life that God wants us to live. I, I don't think we, every now and again, we, we read about men or women that, that seem to, to live in that place. And God does the most extraordinary things with people. And the things that they give up, which is so important to us, to them seems so insignificant. And Lord, I, I want to live a life that is worthy of this King of Kings that we serve. His life was given in my place upon that cross. He went because of my sin, because there was no other way for me to be saved. And my sin was put upon Him. And He bore the penalty of my sin so that I would not have to bear that penalty. And instead of receiving punishment and rejection, I've received forgiveness and acceptance and adoption. And because Christ was raised from the dead, as the first fruits of the resurrection, I too have been raised from the dead. And with absolute certainty know that upon His return, I will be with Him 